join us for the 2010 Southeast Linux Fest as we once again celebrate Linux and open source software in the GNU slash South. Due to the overwhelming response last year, this year's event will be bigger, better, and longer. Stealth 2010 will take place Friday, June 11th through Sunday, June 13th at the Spartanburg Marriott at Renaissance Park in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Be there for UbuCon, Fedora Activity Day, BSDA Certification, Drupal Camp, multiple parties featuring Dual Core as well as the guys from Mystery Science Theater 3000 as Rift Tracks, and an even more expansive group of superb speakers, sponsors, and exhibitors. Self is free to attend, but hurry and register today to lock in the special discount room rate at the hotel. Register today at southeastlinuxfest.org. I'm Austin Bound, get my feelings checked at the door. That's right, Texas has its own community-run Linux Fest on April 10th, 2010 in Austin, Texas. Go to TexasLinuxFest.org for details. And remember, get your Linux on. I'm Austin Bound, get my eyes set on the price. Yes, that's right. On the 1st and 2nd of May this year, Liverpool is the only place to be for anyone interested in free software, free culture and free thinking. It's the second live OGCAMP event, organised by the Linux Outlaws and the Ubuntu UK podcast. The 1st and 2nd of May 2010 at the Blackie, Liverpool. Visit OGCAMP.org for more details. Welcome back to Linux in the Ham Shack, the show that asks the question, do these guys have any idea what they're doing? My name is Richard, KB5JBV, and uh, I am one of the hosts of this festival for the ears. My partner in crime is Russ, K5TUX, over in Arkansas. Say hello to everybody, Russ. Hello, everybody. Good evening, and this is Russ, K5TUX, from Between the Peaks and the Pine Forest from North Central Arkansas. How are you doing, Richard? Uh, I have been better. I have been worse. Actually, today I was abducted by aliens. Well, uh, why don't you let everybody know about that? I just, I was telling y'all about it before we got started. I mean, uh, flying lizard people, invitation to go to a party, Pleiades, said something about sisters. I was going to drink a lot and dance with girls. Wasn't there something about naked. seven virgins or seven women or something like that, too? Something, something, yeah, and ended up naked in a park in Mineola. Barely got time to do the show. But I'm here. I'm here. And, um, boy, I need far more anesthetic than I have in me right now. So what's going on with you, Russ? Not really a whole lot. I was just trying to get prepared for the show tonight. Didn't really get there, but I think we'll have something to talk about. I see. 
Well, the interesting thing is, uh, let me mention this before we go any further. You folks that don't join us live when we record, y'all miss a lot of stuff because the direction I point when I say Arkansas has no bearing on the direction of Arkansas. In fact, if I was going to guess at it, I would say it was Baja, California, uh, the home of nothing really special. And before I forget about it, let us uh, mention our special guest. Who is our special guest, Russ? Well, we actually have two special guests. We'll start with the one I invited, and then we'll start with the part, and then we'll end with the party crasher. The first one is uh, from the IRC, and also from a podcast called Ten Buck Review, and that is Lord Drakenblutz. So, uh, welcome to the show. The digital dragon is in the house, folks. All right. I don't know if anybody from our podcast is familiar with you and your podcast, but if there's a little bit of crossover, then that's that's cool. Very nice. Just a brief overview of my show for those who might be interested. Ten Buck Review, we go out, we buy a movie on DVD or Blu-ray for ten bucks or less. We talk about it some, we watch it, we review it, and we get... The way we do our reviews is based on how much we paid for it. So if we go out buy a movie for five bucks, then that's where we'll, our baseline is. So, you know, if we think it's worth every last dime, we'll give it a five five bucks out of five. But you know, if it's yeah, we might watch it again. We might give it a two fifty out of five. What if the movie is free? We actually have had one episode on that, and that was a flashback review done by a gentleman named Walton Bronx, who's a regular contributor to HPR. At that point, he just did a review of the movie and whether or not he thought it was worth watching. Oh, okay. Was it worth watching? To him, it was, and unfortunately, because of my bandwidth constraints, I haven't had a chance to download and watch it myself. (laughs) Okay, so that must have been a spectacular review from you. The flashback review was actually um, something I hope to get more of, and that was done completely by him. I was not involved in it at all. All right, so anyway, we also have a party crasher. Uh, his name is Jonathan. His call sign is KB1KIX. So welcome to the show. Hello, hello, hello. Well, Chatted a few times via email. Glad to drop on by. Didn't mean to party crash per se. <laughs> you know. That's okay. We allow party crashing. Not a problem. In fact, if we could get eight or ten people in here party crashing, then Russ and I could just, like, kick back in a chair and have a drink while y'all have at it. But uh, we're working on that. We're working on that. Like, say hello to uh, Lord D, and uh, y'all don't he's, – he's a little bit of the bashful type because you hear about him on, on quite a few of the Linux-type shows and, and other stuff. Uh, I had heard uh, at least his uh, his screen name – at other places for a long time, and I'm glad we finally got him on here. Well, thanks for inviting me on, guys. We're going to change up the show a little bit this time, and uh, and we're going to do our announcements and stuff, and then probably uh, talk a little while with these two guys and take care of the feedback at the end. So uh, what you got on that end, Russ, and quit scratching your head? Oh, I'm always scratching my head. You know that. First of all, the change in the format. Uh, we did bring this up before the show and we're going to try it this way and we want to find out from you all if this is going to work out for you in the future or if we should go back to the old way so let us know after the show is done but it's kind of uh, we're still going to do the three segment bit but what's going to happen is the first segment is going to be uh housekeeping type stuff and then we're going to talk about a bit of a you know we'll have a bit of a segment then the middle of the show of course will be the meat of everything 
And uh, at the end, then we'll uh, finish up with whatever we have left over from the first part of the show, and then we'll do the feedback at the end. So hopefully it'll keep the people who are interested in hearing about themselves all the way through the show and keep those people who are not interested in hearing about themselves listening to the to the important parts. As far as the noise gate is concerned, we got a donation towards your noise gate. Craig sent us a donation, towards uh, which is going to be put towards Richard's noise gate. That's our first donation there. So thank you very much, Craig. I thank you, Richard. Thanks you, our listeners. Thank you. What you know, what, whatever the story is, but we have a donation, so we're a little bit on our way to getting you a noise gate, Richard. Aren't you happy? Sure, you're happy. Oh, oh yes, I'm overjoyed. I'm ec- I'm ecstatic. I'm ecstatic. Okay, good. Good to hear you're ecstatic. I can mute you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me turn this car around. Oh, you should have thought about that before you left the house. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Russ. All right, the other thing I want to remind people of is that we will be at the Dayton Hamvention in uh, May of this year, and our booth again is in the North Hall, booth 265, North Hall 0265. If you go over to hamvention.org and check on the map, that's where we'll be. I'm trying to figure out what else we need to do here at the beginning want to give out our email addresses here at the beginning, because for those of you who haven't listened to the end in the last 33 episodes, maybe you don't know where to reach us. But if you want to reach us, my email address is k5tux at blacksparrowmedia.com. Richard's is kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com. And we have a phone number. It's toll-free, 888-455-0305. If you want to send us a comment, we'll put it on the air unless you tell us not to. And if you happen to be in the EU or South America or someplace where you can't dial United States toll-free numbers, you can call plus one four one seven four two nine four zero six nine, and we'd love to hear from you. And the reason I bring that up is because we have a couple of contests running. For those of you who didn't hear about that in the last episode, that's why we're doing this stuff at the beginning right now. I didn't hear about it either. You didn't hear about it either? You tuned out at the end? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I haven't heard that episode yet. Well, you're going to hear about it right now, so get out a pencil. Okay, we got two contests running. The first one is a logo contest. The logo that I made for Linux in the Ham Shack is outdated, and quite frankly, it's crap. So we need a new one. So if you have any kind of talent with a paid program, know how to use Photoshop, and or have some kind of artistic merit, Go ahead and send us a logo. We would love to have you send us one. The only thing that has to, you know, the only requirements are that it represent Linux in the Ham Shack as a product and a podcast, and it has to be in a large format, like scalable vector graphic or TIFF. It can be in a lossy format like JPEG if it's large enough, because we want to use it for T-shirts, banners, and other things that promote the show. If you happen to send us a submission, send it to one of the email addresses we just mentioned. Mentioned. If you have the selected winning logo, we're going to send you 100 U.S. dollars. That's cold, hard, green cash, or soft, papery, green cash, something like that. Anyway, 100 bucks for the winner of that one. So please go ahead and give us a logo. We could really use it. And the other contest is an intro contest. I'm going to put some details up on the website. I said that last time, and I didn't do it. I'm, I'm really going to do it this time, so look at look on the website for that at lhsinfo.org. 
But this one is for intros to the program. You basically have to say something like, Hi, this is whoever you are from wherever you are, and promote something of yours or just say something wild, wacky, and you know whatever you're interested in, as long as at some point you say, and you're listening to Linux in the Ham Shack. And in this particular contest, we're going to use all of those that we get. Uh, you can submit them two ways, using the phone numbers that I mentioned earlier on, or you can go ahead and use your favorite editor, edit them up, and send them our way via email. And what about submitting them in person at events such as OLF? Well, unfortunately, the statute of limitations has expired on OLF entries, so sorry about that. Uh, you can always do another one. Yeah, there is that. Yeah, see, there you go. He needs to come. He needs to come down Texas Linux Fest is what he needs to. Come on down Texas Linux Fest. Well, go, you know, donate some money to Ten Bucks Review at Gmail dot com so I can get off the machine and get there. I'm on my way. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. If you do one of those, you can submit it two ways, as I was saying originally. You can edit it yourself and send it to it via send it to us via email, or you can call our toll-free hotline and submit it that way. If you submit it via the phone numbers, you will have two entries in the drawing. If you submit it by yourself via email, you will have one. So if you call our numbers, you will actually have a an added bonus entry into the contest. And we plan to use every one of these that we get at some point in the future. So what will happen is there will be a random winner from all of those entries, and that random winner will receive 25 U.S. dollars in green, soft, feathery, light, dollar form cash. Those are our contests. We hope everybody who can enter them will. And... That's about all I have for housekeeping. You got anything before we get into a real program here? Well, no, we got a promo for Texas Linux Fest. Uh, I probably do need to warn some of y'all that uh, we're probably going to be putting the other show on hiatus for a while. Uh, I still need to put out a uh, announcement in the feed for those who uh, don't listen to this particular show, but that's okay. Uh, we'll get that taken care of as soon as we can. Uh, time constraints have gotten us where we're down to one show and, uh, uh, we got more people being more appreciative over here than over there and a whole mess of other stuff and life is lovely. And with that, uh, unless Russ has anything else, I don't have nothing else. What are we going to do next? Well, what we're going to do next is how long have we gone? Not long enough. So I guess what we're going to do is talk a little bit with our guests here and find out a little bit about them. Then we're going to play some music, and we're going to, when we come back, we're going to talk about our main segment, which is uh, an email that we got in the last episode that we kind of talked about a little bit and said, whoa, we're not going to be able to address this because it was jam-packed with information. But our guests are here to help us ferret out whether the whole thing was BS or whether it has some merit. So... Uh, let's go ahead and talk to our guests. First of all, uh, Lord D, uh, we, we know that you're uh, involved in the 10 buck review thing, but you're also kind of show up on, uh, I think it's the Linux Link Tech Show, maybe, or? Uh, Linux Link Tech Show. I've been on Dave Yates' show. I've been on something kind of techie. I've shown up a couple times on Linux Cranks. I've contributed to ADR. And for those who make not know it. I was also 
a contributor to uh, talk with a techie as well. Okay, so you're one of those uh, Uber, I've been on every show with Linux in the title, uh, including ours now. So what what is it that uh, brings you to Linux that uh, makes you interested in it, that is your background in it, you know, all that stuff? Give us, you know, from birth till now. Well, I started out a heavy Windows user and originally got started back in, back when it was still Mandrake. I actually tried, and I don't remember which version of Mandrake it was off the top, but something I can never remember, and ran into issues at a point with Windmodem, everyone's favorite hate subject back then, and went on message boards and tried to get some help and caught a lot of flack because I was posting from Windows, since I couldn't get the Windows, the Windmodem to work under Linux at the time. Gave up at the time, flash forward a few years, I got involved in the Infonomicon community for a while, a podcast that's no longer around, and then decided to start playing with some different things that required me to, for the easiest things to use uh, Linux to do it, such as playing around with Asterix back at the time. After a while, I just made a permanent switch to Linux, getting set up with Windows. So when would you say was your first real experience with Linux and when you became, you know, in, enamored with it, so to speak? When I was using, when I was just really getting into using one of the versions of CentOS and playing around with Asterix, and then on a Pentium 2 233, I did a uh, Stage 1 Gen 2 install. Built the system pretty much from the ground up to run wasn't XFC, I can't remember, oh, Fluxbox, and built the system from the ground up. The ability to customize the system that heavily was, you know, what got me going on it. Right, so so what time frame would that be? That would, when I made that switch was probably 2003, 2004. Okay, so you've been in it since then or before that, or that that was sort of the when you started? That was when I made, like, the diehard switch to solely Linux. I was probably playing around with it for about a year before then, and I've been pretty much solid Linux since, except for one virtual machine I keep around for one particular Windows application. Yeah, so far I'm still in that boat. I can use Linux for 99.9% .9 of everything I've got, but there's just the lingering app or two, particularly for work, where legacy applications are uh, more prevalent that uh, have to keep it around? Well, the one in particular for me is kind of an odd one. It's a program called Grapevine. It's a live-action role-playing administration utility that just it doesn't quite run in wine right yet. Okay, well, that's that's good to know, I guess, that uh, you've, you've pretty much made the switch, and if you could have your application, your little esoteric app there run under Wine, you'd be completely Linux and Windows-free. Yep. All righty, then. Well, let us talk with Jonathan a little bit, who uh, is a ham radio operator, so let's go with the ham radio operator part first. How long have you been a ham in class and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, general class, I've uh, been a ham for about six, a little over six years now. Actually, uh, right down the road, uh, two towns over from uh, Newington, so it's kind of hard to not get involved and play radio. I was more of an avid shortwave listener and 
like many of the people, you buy a new shortwave radio, you see a sign, get your ham license, and you roll on over, and bada-bing, bada-boom, uh, you don't see daylight much because you're too busy playing with stuff. But Yes, we're all pasty-skinned, unshaven, and toothless. <laughs> I was surprised a little urban kid like me get his ham ticket, what can I say? Except for those of us who are in the, you know, the equatorial parts of the world where you can't help but have nice tanned skin and all that. But they're still unshaven and toothless. Here in southern New England, you <laughs> yeah, can get... Yeah, that means you have to go out into the sun. Yeah, here in southern New England, you get an RF tan. There's plenty of that down here. <laughs> uh, the uh, commercial stuff going on down here and all that. But yeah. God, it was actually kind of funny because I stumbled along... Uh, Richard a while back, we found it on each other's uh, Facebook pages for a while, and I hadn't really thought about much combining, you know, Linux and uh, and ham radio much early on, of course. I'm about 80% uh, on the Linux side. I've been an early promoter. Uh, I've done a, I did a public access show that was on two different cities for a while. Um, going back around 2000, did that for about five, a little over five years. And uh, lo and behold, I started stumbling on some open source stuff for the Windows side and I'm like, hmm, started playing around a little bit more and I guess I ought to confess I'm 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 not uh, fully one hundred percent Linux net yet. I'm still a SUSE user. Still like my SUSE. That's alright, we uh, won't hold that against you. <laughs> I am converting over like I said, I I'm actually formatting a hard drive right now on my old laptop to to run mint. Uh, uh so we chatted a little bit a while back about uh about Linux Mint and uh been playing around with that, and I played around with the, the live distro, so I decided to, you know, stop playing around and make an honest machine out of her and throw ahead and do a real install. And now I'm just starting to play around a little bit more with uh, open source computing and uh, open source hardware for Linux, which is, with wine isn't always the easiest thing trying to get everything to go through that serial port kind of the way you want it to. I get a little hiccups every now and then, but doing some of the... Uh, uh, applications like, uh, you know, software-defined radio and stuff like that under Linux is always pretty cool because not only do we get the beautiful Linux interface, but we get bells and whistles, too. Yep, that's very true. So you've been a ham for six years. You're general class operator right now. So when did you start getting into Linux? Uh, considerably more recently, it sounds like. Oh, no, no, no. I've been a Linux user since about uh, right around 2000. Actually, that was when I first went to Linux World in New York. And uh, originally at work, uh, being a Solaris admin, and so it was kind of the easy drop over to jump over to the command line then. And then, of course, Miguel Diacaza's work started getting much better on the graphical side of things. So I was able to not, you know, wear in my keyboard quite as much. And uh, some of the people I met, like I met the old chief um, technology officer for SUSE, Holger Dydoff. I'd interviewed him on my TV show and corresponded with him a little bit. And it was kind of better on that. And, and then... Uh, one thing led to another, and then you do other shows, you meet other people. I think probably the most, two most esoteric people I've met in the Linux world so far would be Alan Cox. I met him about six, seven years ago, and he's an interesting individual. And probably Jim Mad Dog Hall, who was actually my uncle's teacher at college here in Connecticut a while back, about 20 years ago too, which is kind of a small world thing coming around there again. So no, I've been using Linux for about 10 years, which just work doesn't allow me to because of so many Windows apps. You guys are a little bit luckier in that department than I have. Well, that's kind of interesting, and uh, it's it, it's interesting that you bring up John Mad Dog Hall because I have a pet project that I'm trying to start up. I have a website for it already, and there's an advertisement banner for it on the Linux in the Hamshack site. 
because I'm interested in trying to get a Linux Fest in Missouri so I can actually attend it. So I'm trying to start one up, and I've got a website for it and, you know, proposal, uh, call for uh, volunteers and all that kind of stuff. And I honestly don't know how he found it, but John Mad Dog Hall found the website and posted a comment about um, where to host it and everything. That was before I had really done anything with it. So he was he was there uh, posting on that site within like two days of it being up. So I'm, I'm not sure how he managed to do that. He must be part psychic or something. But but I found it interesting anyway. Yeah, like many of him, he's or uh, Linux uh, guru, he's uh, drinking caffeinated beverages, using caffeinated soap, and uh, not sleeping much. And a Google alert comes across that he found you. Yeah, apparently so. I, I never bothered to ask him uh, how he stumbled across he it. He doesn't use Google alerts. He just grips the Internet <laughs> <laughs> with regular expressions. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that almost sounds like it could be plausible. So you started out with Solaris. Have you tried Open Solaris? Jonathan? Yeah, I did. I did, but again, I, I don't know. I opened Solaris on like an x86 machine. I don't know. To me, it's just kind of like you know running Mac OS X on an x86 machine. I mean, the Motorola stuff is kind of nice, and I don't know. I kind of like the way it used to be. Maybe I'm a little bit nostalgic or anything, but I like my old little old Ultra Spark. It was a nice little machine, and uh, now I just. Uh, just completely converted over to the, to the Linux side, and you know I like it. I like a lot of the widgets and stuff like that. I look, you know, the environment looks pretty. I like the fact that, uh, like, if I'm giving a presentation at a ham fest or something like that, people go ooh and ah, and they look at all the prettiness and they say, "I like your new Mac," and I'm like, "No, no, no." <laughs> <laughs> An interesting tie with uh, Linux and Open Solaris that I don't know. I think a lot of Linux people are aware of, so I don't know how well your listener base would know, but the Open Solaris project was called Project Indiana and is headed up by Ian Murdoch, one of the two found one of the founders of Debian. Never been much of a big Debian. Like I said, I'm a SUSE guy. I've used SUSE for like six years, so and I'd never even bothered looking around. It wasn't until I saw a lot of the other uh ham distributions like gosh what was that one that was around for a while harv's ham shack hack that was uh floating around there for a little, little bit and uh then i ended up just one thing led to another i'd found you guys and i jumped on the linux mint bandwagon and that's why i'd get in a permanent install now rust likes mint because it's pretty i do like mint because it's pretty although i'm still mostly a hardcore debian user although for some reason, I have this strange mishmash of Debian, Ubuntu, and Mint, uh, depending on what machine I happen to be at at the moment. So we pretty much established that Jonathan is a SUSE guy who's switching over to Mint. What kind of a guy are you, Lord D? Um, I've actually been pretty heavy Debian and Kubuntu user. Not big on the GNOME stuff anymore. But I've recently been making the switch over to Fedora 12. Fedora 12. That and testing it out. Yeah. Uh, that's not because of 330 and his evangelism, is it? No, it's been from listening to um, Not Clot 2 more than anything. And just, I am on dial-up in the middle of nowhere and was getting really tired with doing some updates and kept hearing about the Delta RPMs in Fedora and wanted to give it a shot. 
It does sound like an interesting feature, but not Klaatu is a Slackware user, so he cannot be trusted. He is a Fedora <laughs> user as well. He's a slacker. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely a slacker. And uh, you guys may or may not know, I have like four dozen machines in this house running something at any given time. And uh, I've been trying to get, uh, oh, doggone it, now I open my mouth. CentOS, yeah, getting one of them running on uh, CentOS for some of the amateur, the amateur radio stuff. I'm Actually, I'm trying to get a bootleg copy of the uh, D-Star Gateway software, and that's uh, what they wrote it to run on. And... I could run it on something else, but if they've already wrote it specifically to run on CentOS, then why mess with it? Something interesting I discovered on the Fedora 12 system, it is the first distro I've run into that got the Broadcom chip on a laptop going without having to install a proprietary driver. Broadcom oh. chips for what? Wi-Fi. Most laptops, yeah. That would be wireless internet, Russ. It's a new thing. It's okay. No, no, no. Broadcom does a lot of things. They don't just do Wi-Fi. But you know what? Well, I would... thought I said Broadcom for Wi-Fi. I'm sorry if I left that out. You know, that'd be really good for us. I've been using, oh, I haven't used 12 yet, but up to 11. Um, you know, when people end up losing their Windows disks and want me to fix their computers for them, I'm like, well, I'm not throwing Windows back on it for you, but I'll throw, you know, uh, Linux on there for you. And I found the last couple of versions of uh a fedora have been really easy for them to just jump on and uh and that was the biggest problem i always had with the broadcom that can be really slick i'm gonna have to check that out then because uh so far i've got about a half a dozen of my friends that i've that i've thrown fedora on and they're not even looking back they're like my machine runs fast and all that other stuff i'm like i've only been telling you that for years but the broadcom <laughs> video is uh is pretty slick because that's always been the biggest problem on a laptop is getting that broadcom running well, if you think uh, Fedora 11 does that, you should try Mint because I haven't had I haven't put Mint on a computer yet. It hasn't found every piece of hardware in it, including one with a Broadcom. Yeah, including one with a Broadcom uh, wireless and wired chipset. The wired chipsets I've never run into a problem. It's always been the wireless ones because of the proprietary drivers required there. Yeah, Dell used to be a big problem for me with Debian because they would because Debian didn't include the Broadcom wired drivers. He'd always have to get a boot floppy uh, in order to get it installed. But like I've put Mint on a netbook, a notebook, a PC, a server, and basically every kind of hardware I've thrown it on. Of course, they've all been x86 and x86 64 based systems, but it didn't matter what kind of hardware it had for wireless, wired. Whether it be SATA, SAS, IDE, whatever, it found everything, like right off the bat. About the only piece of hardware I've had a problem with in probably the last year and a half to two has been an obscure little uh, trans-flash card reader that just nothing will work on it. Yeah. I, I have I do have one piece of hardware that I cannot get to work, and that is a thumbprint scanner. It's made, I think, by Thompson Electronics. It actually came with a Dell system, and even the Dell drivers don't work with it. I have not found a single operating system or driver for any system, Windows, Linux, BSD, OpenSolaris, or otherwise, that will see this scanner. 
Now, the last time I heard about fingerprint scanners on Linux, it was a pretty, you know, you had to dig into the command line to get those to work and jump through some hoops, and I think that goat had to be sacrificed as well. That that may be the problem. I haven't I haven't raised uh, the proper goat uh, for for the blood sacrifice. I will try that next. Now, one other thing I didn't I glossed over is I am a former licensed ham operator myself. Through some bad circumstances, unfortunately, I had to let my license lapse. That's okay. We we don't begrudge you that. So, how, did you ever use it once you when you got it? Yeah. I mostly stuck to the two-meter band at the time. So you were like a no-code tech? Yes, sir. Well, at least you at least you made some kind of an effort. That We'll, we'll give you that. In a, in a day when, it, when everybody is light, from tech light to extra light, you sat down, you took the test, and you passed. So <laughs> makes you one of the brothers, even if your license is not active. But, uh, actually, uh, Keith in the chat, or Keith, see, I did it, Lee. Lee in the chat, chat room said, uh, he's been, uh, experimenting with loading mint up on, uh, on one of his machines. And he said it found his sound card right away. I'm, I'm, Lee, do you know what type of, uh, uh, wireless you got in that? But, uh, also, I've been seeing a lot of improvement in that over the, uh, over the last four or five versions of Ubuntu, and I'm sure if it's improved there, it's improved back one direction in Debian and the other direction in Mint. Uh, Key, uh, Lee says that, uh, that his is a Broadcom and Mint found it right away. So, uh, I think everything's coming along. You know, I, I still hear people griping about, uh, Linux being in the Stone Age. And the fact of the matter is, uh, what I'm seeing out of some of the newest versions of the more popular distros, uh, it looks to me like uh, it's just as good, if not uh, better in some areas, for even the new user than some of the other operating systems. And we won't mention that one because we don't want to give them no press. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, from my own experience, a friend of mine is, she's a complete tech luddite. She, you know, couldn't right-click on a window to save her life, and I switched her over to Kubuntu 9.10 to get her away from a heavily infested Windows machine. She has been happy and content on that thing for about nine months now. I haven't heard a single complaint. Yeah, you know, the whole thing about the whole Stone Age comments, too, is um, going back to, I'm talking back in the Building Tree days with Alan Cox, one of the things uh, when him and I were chatting at Linux World was, uh, a lot of people didn't like the fact that he uh, didn't want to implement the latest and greatest and everything because he felt a lot of that stuff was kernel bloat. And, you know, once you start, you know, putting all these different technologies in there, once you get the code in there, you know, it's like bad legislation. You're never going to get it back out again. And uh, I kind of do respect the direction that he wanted to do with kernel development in that, in that vein that because look at exactly what's wrong with Windows and similar type stuff with all the garbage that's in there. You're just never going to get it out of there. And I'm just hoping that it doesn't get to the point to where, in order to make it so easy, we start making some of the same mistakes that that, you know, that cathedral operating system has done and go ahead and just start throwing in all kinds of crap in there that we really don't need. And I see what you're talking about because, actually, I've noticed uh, stuff that I've attributed to overhead in some of the... uh, 
the newer versions. That's why I run GNOME instead of KDE. Uh, and in fact, I've got a project going over here on a, on an old, uh, 500 megahertz, uh, Dell laptop that I'm using CrunchBang Lite on. And, uh, you know, it runs like, uh, runs like it's supposed to, runs like a two gig machine. It's that quick. But the, uh, the whole point is, I, yeah, I'm seeing more and more, uh, slowdown due to overhead considerations and some of the bloat, but the majority of it seems to be in the actual apps and not, not the kernel itself. But, uh, that's one thing you really have to watch out for. Mozilla's going, apparently been going nuts because Firefox is getting really, really heavy in, uh, just extra extraneous stuff I've noticed. I mean, it's it's in there and it's working like it's supposed to, but uh, it sure don't run it near as fast as it used to. Well, that may be true, yeah, but I've I've tried to I've switched over to to Google Chrome just because I was having some problems with uh, Firefox starting to run slow. Google Chrome seems to run like crap for me, and I, and I'm talking about on every system. I run it on Mac OS, Windows, and Linux. It seems like a bigger hog than Firefox. I've actually switched back to Firefox and didn't seem to have as much of a problem with it. And just today, I upgraded to 3.6 on the Mac OS machine, and it seems even better. So I don't now, want to necessarily... But I'd have to ask if there's uh, two particular extensions you're running on Firefox that aren't really available for Chrome, and that's NoScript and AdBlock. I don't run those either. Matter of fact, the only extensions I have for any of my browsers right now uh, is Xmarks. That's the only thing I really use. Xmarks rocks. Yeah, Xmarks is definitely the bomb. That's like the greatest thing I've ever seen. One thing I wanted to say on the kernel front is, you know, you got to keep in mind that there's two ways you can run the kernel nowadays. As a monolithic kernel where you just build everything in, or as a modular kernel where you load in the modules you need I don't really see any advantage to a monolithic kernel anymore unless you've got a server that's dedicated to a single purpose and you know you'll never, ever, ever need to modify that kernel, though. See, that's one of the issues we run into on the amateur radio side um, since since we're talking about modular and um, uh, that kind of stuff. Still to this day, to run some uh, app- some packet radio applications, you have to go in, switch things on, recompile the kernel, you spend a week, two weeks, three weeks trying to get all this stuff running. It may or not may not get running when you got everything the way you're supposed to. You know, uh, as far as being able to plug modules in and unplug them as you need them and that kind of stuff, it seems to me it would work a lot better, a whole lot better for something like that. Now you've got uh, got apps out there that will do uh, do the uh, or drive the data. For uh, the digital modes and stuff, I mean, uh, uh, FL Digi is one that does a bunch of digital modes. And as far as packet radio is concerned, every, the big thing where packet radio is concerned right now is APRS. And uh, the main application for that, once you set your uh, TNC in, uh, I think it's, yeah, KISS mode, uh, it'll drive that TNC just the way it's supposed to be. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely progress on, from the amateur radio end where that's concerned. Well, the thing I is, two- imagine, go ahead. I can imagine DK, DKMS is helping on that front as well if you're building towards that. Well, I think Richard's referring in 
part at least to the AX.25 kernels. Yeah. And yeah. the thing of it is, in the 2.6 kernel, which is pretty much completely modular, the AX.25 support, and I haven't checked the kernel config for the latest 2.6 kernel, which I think is, what, 2.633? Is that the latest one? I don't know what the current kernel config is for the AX.25 support, but it's probably built as a module, which means that you would never have to recompile a kernel just to add AX25 support. It, you know, it's just a matter of loading the AX25 kernel module. And I could go ahead and look at Mint, which is what I've got here to find out, but I'm too lazy for that. Uh, but I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have to rebuild a kernel just to add that. Well, you know, get on the, on the radio geeky side, you know, that's one of the things that stops people from doing a lot of stuff that's AX25 related simply because, um, um, well, WinLink 2000, uh, you have to run it on packet when you're, uh, up above HF. You're, you're on VHF, UHF, you, you have to run packet there, AX25, uh, and there are nodes and other things that you can add to that, uh, switches, on-air switches at different locations and that kind of stuff. All this stuff you can do with that, uh, AX25, and one of the things that's kept people from moving over to Linux in that case is simply because it was such a pain in the butt. You know, I got in with SUSE 9, and, uh, well, I'll take it back. I had a half a copy of Mandrake at one time before that. But I got in at SUSE 9, fairly quickly moved over to Debian, ended up with Ubuntu at, uh, shoot, I can't even remember what it was, Ori Hedgehog, I think. And I think that's all the way back to 504. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's been the problem for me because, uh, the guy that was trying to talk me into doing, uh, doing some of the AX25 stuff, he was running SUSE. He was, a, he had been running it for years and years and years. He knew the ins and outs of it and how to set the stuff up and everything. I, I came over from a copy of Windows 2000 Pro and I'm like, I don't know how to do this. Well, I will tell you this. I'm looking at my, copy of linux mint right now which is linux mint uh um seven i have currently kernel 2.6.28-18 generic on my machine and ax25 support is built as a module so if i needed ax25 support and this is the default kernel i haven't messed with it one bit so if i needed ax25 support all i'd have to do is mod probe it and i would have it really yep See, Russ still has to teach me because I, I still don't know that much about it. <laughs> I was gonna say you could do that in Fedora. For, I did that in Fedora in ten, and uh, it's pretty simple actually. It's funny I couldn't find it on my Hamshack machine, but when I was putting it on one of my friends' machine, I'm like, "Whoa, AX25!" And I'm like, "What?" Friends are like, "What's that?" I'm like, "Don't don't even get me started." But the neat thing, though, not to harp on the APRS thing, because I know you guys aren't big fans of some of that stuff, but... No, Russ is a fan. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think the uh, the neat thing, though, is at least there's a full open source option, you know, pretty much in soup to nuts. I mean, you can run Zaster, you can run an open tracker, so you don't need to be, you know, pigeonholed into running proprietary stuff, at least from the APRS standpoint, and there's a lot of projects out there that are forking off doing everything from... You know, just messaging from a ham HUD type perspective to, of course, the GPS stuff, then to the weather station stuff. There's a lot of uh, special weather station code on the open tracker that's not available on the others. So there, there's some pretty neat development on that front. 
Oh, let me tell uh, Jonathan to watch yeah. out when he's uh, when he's saying forking off. I might have to edit him. There'll be no forking unless I'm in, <laughs> I'm invited. Okay. <laughs> On the Fedora machine, it's uh, Colonel two dot six dot thirty two dot nine dash seventy dot SC twelve X eighty six sixty four, and the AX twenty five module is available. We'll see. That, that's it. I'm gonna have to learn this stuff. What I was saying a while ago is there's even an, uh, there's even an open source version of WinLink for the uh, VHF and above. It's not actually an HF version, but uh, it will allow you to run the packet stuff, uh, hook into the internet, all that other good stuff. Just like uh, what are the what do they call that? PackLink? No, Telpack. Just like a Telpack node, and um, and do all that stuff. Unfortunately, that's another one of those things that everybody because when you go out on the internet and you start looking up how to set up AX25. You, the only document out there, and there's thousands of copies out there on the internet, but it's all one document, and it was written in 2000, I believe. So it's, uh, not really informative for the new systems. But now that I know this, you can plug the AX25 in, me and Russ gonna be trying to write a paper on it. <laughs> kind of neat though is on the packet side though, is if we had like a nice open, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't write code, I just, steal other people's code or liberate other people's code and kind of judiciously compile it. But uh, if we had something like Outpost, you know, on the Windows side and kind of, you know, uh, on the Linux side there and where you have a nice WYSIWYG interface that kind of looks like an email application or something like that, I think it'd be a lot easier to get people using Linux and packing that environment versus so many of the command line type applications left because I know a lot of people, the moment you start going back there, they go, they get queasy and you kind of lose them at that point. Well, as far as a terminal app, kind of like that, um, uh, PackLink is also like that on the Windows side. And I think there's a, a piece of software in the works for the Linux side to do something very similar in that case. And, uh, also, uh, if you've taken a look at DRATS, and I guess you probably wouldn't if you weren't looking at DSTAR, but if you've taken a look at DRATS and you kind of watch and see what, uh, what he's doing over, what Dan's doing over there, at some point there will be a, a post office type interface with that. He's also trying to get packet, uh, plugged into it also. And, uh, I think we may be working on something that direction too. Uh, I end up blowing off about Ham Radio Deluxe because, uh, they snagged a bunch of code from FL Digi to put into it. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with all this. You know, share, sharing the codes, what it's all about, as long as you let everybody know where you got it from. Yeah, I hear you. But man, that, that, that for me is my killer Ham Shack app, the Ham Radio Deluxe. I mean, that. The rig control, the remote interface on it and everything. I mean, that is a fantastic piece of software. I see what you're saying. I mean, because I think it's Simon Brown probably gets all the credit for it. I didn't know that that's where the code had come from, but. A lot of the code comes from FL, did you? Still a killer app, though. Well, I don't know about that. I've never really liked Ham Radio Deluxe. And one nice thing about the Linux support for rig control is that it's all built into HamLive, which creates an abstraction layer for applications. All they have to do is incorporate the Ham library. And they can use rig control for any rig that's included in HamLive. Ham Radio Deluxe doesn't doesn't do that specifically, unless it ripped off HamLive. I don't know. I obviously can't see the code, 
Yeah, I'm running the FT-897D uh, over here, and uh, I've got it plugged into one serial port. In fact, I was telling Russ about it, I think, last time. Uh, installed a couple of serial ports in the uh, machine I use over on the radio desk, and I've got the uh, rig control running via uh, Hamlib and uh, uh, through FLDG. I've also got the uh, sound card interface running off another serial port into the uh, into the rig and uh, i mean it's it's great man all i gotta reach up do is reach up and double click uh, a stored frequency or reach over and click on the numbers a little bit and it goes wherever i want it to go i think what they get me is the uh both the integration with the uh i think the cluster integration is pretty slick and uh the logbook integration all in one envelope is has worked. I haven't done most of some of the digital modes in HRD. I use it pretty much just for the logging, the obvious rig control and and the clusters and that's something else I'm finding pretty easy because uh you know, I run uh I run my machines where I've got four desktops. So if I want to switch between the logging program, the rig control and the uh FLDG for the digital stuff and everything else, and I reach down, click to a different desktop, see what's going on, click back, because I don't see very well, so even on these 17-inch monitors, I have to uh, keep as few applications on there at a time as possible. Plus, I'm not very bright, so it's just easier to click on stuff. (laughs) You know, 22-inch monitors are cheap these days. Uh, not to divert the subject too completely, but I'll tell you what. My father bought my uh, bought my lady love a monitor for her birthday. It's a 23-inch Hewlett-Packard. Now, let me tell you something. I feel like I could climb inside that thing and live. It's so big. But, uh, you know, I can't even afford a, a noise gate, so why, why would I, you know? Yeah, I know. I understand. I'll tell you one thing, this segment has gone about 30 minutes longer than I thought it was going to, so I think what we need to do is kind of put a break in here, let everybody get a cup of coffee and take a bathroom break, or for those of you who are in your truck driving cross country, just kind of hang out for a little bit. I'll throw on a little music, and we're going to come back on the other side, and we're going to do feedback, uh, because it doesn't look like we need a middle segment right now. We've been talking up a storm. But anyway, we'll be back in about four minutes. We'll catch you on the other side.
Okay, and we are back. Okay, we went pretty lengthy on the last one. We swung over Linux Geek, we swung back to Amateur Geek, and then we swung back to Linux Geek some more, and i tell you what, I am so confused, I probably should have stayed with the aliens at the party. All right, Russ, uh, we're going to forego a, a, a major attempt at feedback this time around, but we do have one we want to talk about for a while. So why don't you go ahead and lead us on into this possible and probable fiasco take it away russ oh i don't think it'll be a fiasco i think it'll work out just fine but we talked about this in the last episode i read in uh, a piece of feedback we got from jim november 2 echo november november and when i got done with it we kind of looked at each other and said oh my god he said so much in that we can't possibly address it in this episode so we're going to address it in the next episode so that's why we have Lord Drakenblut and Jonathan here. And between the four of us, we are going to rip this thing apart. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. I, I think. We need a guy from Solder Smoke. You and I can have a discussion about Solder Smoke after the podcast. Okay. There's a reason for that. So I'm going to read I'm going to read the first. This, this came in two paragraphs. I'm going to read the first paragraph. And I've got some notes here, and then we're we're all going to roundtable this email, and we're going to get to the heart of the matter. So, everybody ready? Uh-huh. Lord D, ready? Yes, sir. All right, Jonathan, you ready? Kicks is in. All right, yeah. so here we go. This Again, this is from Jim, N2ENN, and here's the first paragraph. Personal computers are built to run Windows. Some of the hardware, especially graphics and wireless devices, are evolving too rapidly for patents to keep up. So the manufacturers protect them through trade secrets. Since the source code for a graphics driver would clue to the geometry of the graphics chip, it's closed source to keep the competition out. Wireless cards are another issue. Since they are, for the most part, software-defined radios... The software has to be submitted to the FCC along with the hardware for type approval. Also, since the itty-bitty micro on the wireless card doesn't run Intel code, you can't make code for it with GCC and GNU libraries, hence the binary blob. An open-source wireless driver for a software-defined license-free transmitter is an invitation for a smackdown from the FCC. Okay, so at this point I say discuss. At this point, I say Russ screwed the pooch on that one because he missed the first paragraph. What do you mean I missed the first paragraph? I wasn't even going to. No, no, no. I'm not talking about the, the the thing about microphones. We talked about that last time. Oh, well, screw the microphones. We don't need the guy from Solder Smoke. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I'll throw out here is on the graphics card. You know, ATI has been doing some work about opening the specs on their cards recently. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but, you know, between ATI doing that and the Nouveau driver, you know, a lot of big strides are being made on driving, you know, these higher-end 3D cards. I've been hearing a lot about the Nouveau driver lately, and one thing that I don't know about it is, was the code for it reverse-engineered, or did NVIDIA actually release something that allowed open-source developers to code a driver for them? As I understand it, NVIDIA hasn't released anything. This is reverse-engineering, or perhaps uh, double-blind reverse-engineering, if I'm thinking the right term. 
Now, I haven't... But every ATI computer, has released stuff. Right. I understand that ATI has actually released things to the open source community to allow for ATI driver development. Unfortunately, all of the computers that I own have NVIDIA chipsets, and I've been using the proprietary binary drivers, which I hate to say it, but they work fantastic, uh, apart from the fact that they're closed-sourced and evil. And, you know, to be honest, depending on the type of NVIDIA card you're running, there's, you know, a couple things that NVIDIA are doing on the Linux side of things that Windows just right now cannot compete with. Are you saying and that is uh, are you saying that is a plus for Linux or just uh, a out plus of... for Linux? Yeah, the CDPAU driver. That's something Windows can't touch at this point, to my knowledge. This is NVIDIA you're talking about. Yes, hmm. the CDPAU oh. driver allows you to offload um, video decoding to the graphics card. So on an Acer Aspire Revo box, which is a 1.6 gigahertz Atom chip with an NVIDIA graphics chip, you can play back 1080p video. Well, that's interesting. I haven't seen a piece of hardware that uses an Intel, like a netbook that uses Intel processor hardware with an NVIDIA chipset. Everything I've got is Intel all the way through. It's uh, referred to as the Ion platform. Hmm, Interesting. But as far as these guys were smart, <laughs> yes, they are very, very intelligent guys. But we haven't heard from Jonathan yet. <laughs> well, no, I, I was just thinking as, as you guys were going on, and I was just uh, thinking about one of my favorite projects. Like I, I'm probably going to date myself on this one a little bit, but back in the early days, remember when we used to have to use like generic drivers, like the Tulip drivers for our networking and everything. Then Netgear was like an early adopter to come up with some good networking drivers for their hardware and stuff like that for Linux and stuff like that. And I think that the paragraph that you read is a little bit kind of cynical in one respect because at the same time, you're always going to have companies that are going to try to keep certain parts of the code closed loop. I mean, it goes back to the whole cathedral versus bizarre mentality, but at the same time, you get killer app, killer projects out there like maybe Myth TV or something like that where look at how much when between this TV and when um, they started doing broadcast flags and stuff like that, all of a sudden Hapog started selling tons of video cards and, you know, Turtle started selling tons of audio. So there was manufacturers in these markets that are that were making a really good profit margin, yet still making stuff easily accessible to the open source market. I don't know if I want to put it all so much on the FBC and the closed loop because uh, of manufacturers, because if that was the case, you wouldn't get, like, Asus coming out with you know, small minis that run specifically like Ubuntu and stuff like that. I mean, I think that there is a market, and I think the market's definitely growing. I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't be as cynical as that paragraph originally was. Well, you know, also, so, um, I've noticed that as we... Out of talking about a video card? I didn't hear it at the beginning. Of I think we need to make sure we separate separate the FCC out of talking about video cards. That's two different realms completely. We can nitpick, and it would be, but we're not. As part of this discussion, it's probably not the not doesn't need to be included. Uh, what I was getting at is, I've seen a tremendous improvement in the uh, hardware support since I've started using it. And y'all remember, I'm the dumb old guy that just really doesn't know that much about operating systems and software and stuff. But um, the fact of the matter is, I've seen a tremendous leap in the uh, uh, on the Linux side. 
towards uh, making sure that current hardware is supported whenever possible, even if uh, in the case of uh, uh, the non-Linux purist, you have to go get a proprietary driver and install it. And, you know, some of us aren't as upset about that as some of us started out on Slackware in the very beginning and that kind of stuff. And I have yet to uh, install a... Uh, a distribution on any machine here at the house for anybody, including myself, and not been able to get a reasonable, well, better than reasonable results out of the video drivers. Um, you know, I'm not here. We don't run hot rod graphics. We don't do a lot of gaming and stuff like that, which is not something you'd probably be doing on Linux anyway, even though there are improvements coming down the pike on that too. But uh, for most of the stuff that we do over here, we haven't had any issues with getting the video to do what we needed to do. Well, do you have issues getting the video to do what you needed to do using open source drivers or proprietary drivers? I think that's the issue. Well, it, that may be the issue, but that's what I was talking about with the Linux purists, okay? Um, your new guys coming into Linux, for the most part, are not purists. Uh, in fact, I myself have one or two machines over here that have to run Windows for uh, uh, different reasons. And as far as the purity of the open source, free as in uh, speech thing, okay, I'm all for that. But once again, okay, you, 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 it's what I was talking about driving drywall screws with a hammer uh, earlier. You know, sometimes you just have to use the best tool for the job. And if you're going to get hung up on the freedom thing, uh, and it stop you from doing what you need to do, well, then that's something you need to sort out in your own private time. Uh, like That's what I'm saying. I'm having to use most of the machines here run NVIDIA, NVIDIA cards. We have to use the NVIDIA drivers to make them work. But they work, and in time, they'll be an open source equivalent, and I'll start using those when they're there, but they're not there now. Well, actually, Nouveau is supposed to be the out, the open source equivalent for NVIDIA. And to be honest, I haven't tried it yet. I'm still using the binary version. But I've heard that people who use Nouveau actually have had uh, very good luck with it. I'm running Nouveau on the laptop in front of me right now, and it works well. The only problem is I have had no luck on getting uh, the K-Win effects going. Now, I've heard talks the next version of Nouveau is supposed to have more support for that, but we'll see. Now, how's 3D support in general? Pretty good? Um, I don't think it's got 3D support going well at all at this point. It's, you know, your basic 2D stuff they've got going right now. Okay, so the, so the point remains, I guess, and Richard is kind of making that point, that if you want to use... NVIDIA chipset cards on Linux with any kind of support at all, you have to use the proprietary binary drivers. And one thing that's interesting about that is if you're using a system like Debian, when you install the NVIDIA drivers from NVIDIA, it complains about kernel taint. And if you're using a, mo a different distribution that's based on Debian, like Ubuntu or Mint, all of that stuff is hidden in the background. It just says... Ooh, we have some drivers that are better than the ones you're using. Do you want to use them? And you say yes, and it installs them and kind of hides the fact that you are tainting the Linux kernel. 
for people who don't understand Linux, uh, tainting the Linux kernel, you basically, anything that you install as a kernel module that's not uh, GNU compatible, GNU Linux compatible, causes kernel taint, which means that you're not using something that's open source, i.e. free as in speech. Debian cares about that stuff, and you'll see it if you install NVIDIA, the NVIDIA drivers, the binaries in Debian. But a lot of uh, other distributions will obfuscate that fact. Of course, they obfuscate a lot of stuff. But it's something you need to think about, I guess, if you are interested in the free, freeze and speech uh, aspect of this. But again, if you're talking about what does the job, then right now, Nouveau is not that thing. Uh, this is where I kind of laugh because, like we mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm still a GNOME user, so maybe I wouldn't notice the difference. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I, I find it awkward as much as, you know, um, people want to, a lot of people want to go completely religious and go open source only. I look at it as, well, why did you buy, you know, a $200 card from a manufacturer, but you don't want to use their code to run the card? And that that's always been one of the kind of iffy things with me. I think there's a bit of a separation when you're talking about software for a piece of hardware that you purchased versus going purely open source on software. And that's the point I'm getting at. These same people that, that scream and complain about uh, free, 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 where Linux is concerned, are the same folks that are out there carrying iPhones and iPods and uh, Blackberries <laughs> uh, and all that stuff. And if they're going to be that adamant about it, why aren't they carrying Android phones and using something like a Santa clip? The whole free software thing is, is relative. Either you want it to work or you want to, you have the ability to let your stuff not work properly. And in the case of somebody like myself, I use my computers for the podcast, of course, but I also use them for my job. My job is not as computer heavy as Russ's is, but I still use mine for um, setting up jobs, going and getting the info for the jobs, working emails back and forth with managers, store managers and stuff like that. And I need everything to work. So until a good usable alternative comes along from the Linux side or the open source side, then it saves me a lot of aggravation to just go ahead and use the uh, drivers from the people who built the chipset. You know, it just makes sense on my end of it. Right, and it, in some ways it may be incompatible with the GPL and the GNU Linux philosophy, but, you know, you, you kind of make that decision on your own. I guess I think we're kind of getting away from the email itself, and I'd kind of like to pick it apart as the email just so we address the issues <laughs> brought up by N2ENN. Just before you leave, one point is that there's well, a lot of people that haven't had that discussion before. Um, it's a venerable classic, but Eric Raymond's book, The Cathedral and the Bazaar, has hits up on a lot of these kind of points if you want to, anybody wants to get deeper in, in, in the topic. Well, that, Bill? Yeah, it's good, <laughs> it's good you bring that up because we have our resident note taker and Bill will put that in the show notes. So that, that works out excellent. You've got to consider how you're defining the, you know, using the graphics card. You know, for a lot of people, they really don't need the 3D acceleration. And, Things like Nouveau, the open source API drivers that's out there will do the job perfectly well and in some cases save you hassles and issues when it comes to doing upgrades on your system. Like my other laptop is a Kabuntu system that I used to run the proprietary API driver on, but the proprietary driver actually caused a issue with uh, suspense 
which would cause it to just die every time I tried to suspend it. When I moved away from the proprietary driver over to the open source API one, suspend works just fine. Well, I, I'll give you your whatever you want to say about ATI be, because I am not a fan of ATI. As far as I'm concerned, ATI can bite me. You see, it was all a plot to get Russ to say bite me. <laughs> and I said bite me on the podcast, and that will remain in the final edit. And there you have it. Well, see, that's the whole point. I, uh, where this email is concerned, you know, we pretty much uh, beat that first part of it to death. And we could probably do a whole show on, on that section. But I kind of wanted to split this paragraph in half because the wireless cards, we got a whole different subject going on there. And, uh, I mean, if y'all have any thoughts on it, you go right ahead because I've been sitting here with my hand, with uh, the pistol cock since uh, we got to that part of it a while ago. Well, let me uh, let me address the notes that I put down because I I want to sort of legitimize the fact that I actually did some work on this email. For those of you like um, Jonathan and Lord D who can actually see my notes, you can go ahead and comment on what I'm about to say before we get to the wireless stuff. Um, but the first thing the first thing you said was personal computers are built to run Windows, which um, I I took immediately as crap. And the first thing I wrote down about that was that personal computers are designed as commodity hardware by chip designers who create the instruction sets, and then operating system designers have to model their operating systems based on the uh, instruction sets created by the chip designers. Now, if... uh, Lord D or Jonathan would like to, uh, you know, dispute that fact. Uh, now would be a good time. Well, I think nah, one I think- thing that that can go to highlight this is, you know, not that long ago was Apple switching to the x86 architecture themselves. Well, that's you know, right. The yeah. difference between a PC and X, you know, an OS X is not that, or at least the hardware they run on is not that big anymore. Lord D beat me to it, but at the same time, you know, if you, I've only been to one chip conference, and oh my gosh, watching paint peel really is more exciting. Um, but you see, a lot of the discussions are just they're not OS centric anymore. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, they're talking about stripping them down, even using chipsets and smaller architecture and everything like that. I mean, I, I, I can't see that it's specifically meant to be a closed loop hardware. No. I think that's well, one time I believe it was true that they were building them two windows because that was just about the only game in town. Everything else was so archaic that they didn't really want to fool with it. But now, uh, with the state of, uh, the state of, uh, where OS 10 is, where, uh, there are some really good distributions of Linux, BSD, and others out there, uh, it is moving away from these machines being built specifically to run their best with Windows operating system on them to functioning uh, properly with, no matter what operating system is on them. And you can see that with uh, some of the manufacturers even moving over to offering uh, uh, offering some of their equipment with Linux already installed. And it's not that crappy old uh, whatever it was they used to sell down at Fry's. They're actually good copies of some of the better distributions that are more user-friendly for the folks that are moving over from Windows. Well, I hate to disagree with what I think you're saying, but how do you design hardware to an operating system? The operating system has to use the code set that's designed in the chip. I mean... 
Intel could say, well, we're going to change entire, we're going to change our entire structure set or instruction set, and Windows would go to hell in a handbasket. Linux would too, but you you can't make a machine that's OS dependent. Well, what I'm saying is, in the past, they would pick the uh, cards. The, and Russ, you've been around long enough. I've been around long enough to remember when we had to insert memory chips into the main, into the motherboard with our thumb. And the ones that were more friendly, as far as the drivers and the actual hardware itself, to Windows, were the ones that uh, were out there in the public. If you wanted anything other than what came standard in a machine, and I even had a Commodore. A commodore pc that had uh, parts in it that were geared to run windows okay and the the instruction set for uh, the other commodores was completely different however but and if you wanted anything other than that you had to go down and purchase it so you had this set of hardware that was windows compatible and that's what was going to be in a in a pc if you bought it and if you wanted anything other than that you were going to have to go dig up one of these little hole-in-the-wall uh, computer fixer-up mom-and-pop shops somewhere and get it and put it in yourself. Well, answer me this. Does Windows actually run anything? Is there a piece of hardware that you've installed in a computer that Windows has actually had the drivers for? Or do you have to actually go to that CD that they provide with you to or, you know, to install that third-party driver to get the damn thing to work? Well, there's some g- generic drivers in there. Go, y'all go ahead. It, it depends on the age of the hardware in question. I've actually did a uh, test install of Windows 7 just to see what it was like, and the only thing that didn't have a driver for it right out of the box, but the generic driver they had for video support still worked, covered it, was the video card. Yeah, I think it also depends on whether you use the actual like Windows disc versus the one that comes obviously from uh like dell or something like that because they're going to load it with all their stuff in it before i mean uh but windows 7 i have to say anything that's been roughly six months on i have a windows 7 pro box for work and uh it's picked up everything except for the bluetooth actually that's the only thing that it didn't pick up but it's been it picked it up fine and windows and uh Microsoft doesn't actually manufacture parts. What we're talking about is compatibility with software. And their software is written, and they have deals to get drivers written with some of these hardware manufacturers so that uh, these particular items will be more compatible with their system than other what we call generic items, aftermarket items. Well, I kind of get what you're saying, but the point of the the point of the original message was that the computers were built to run Windows, but that's not really true. I mean, that that's the whole thing we're trying to debunk here, and the myth is that you know the the PC comes out Windows compatible, which is a bunch of crap. The idea is that the hardware comes out, it has instruction sets, it has uh, API layers released by the manufacturers, and then coders go out and and create drivers for that hardware and the idea being that windows has a lot of paid programmers who can probably bang out a lot of uh, driver hardware or driver software uh with little to no effort because that's what they do but in fact uh drivers mostly come from the manufacturers anyway and they happen to code to windows and that's fine but open source coders do the same thing they build drivers based on the hardware apis or the hardware structure whether it be the default instruction set or the API released by the, 
the uh, hardware vendor uh, to create drivers for one OS or the other. So to say that computers are built to run Windows is a load of crap, and I think that's basically where I was going with that. I think we're getting different answers on the same thing. Hardware is Windows compatible is because Windows has the market share as far as OSs go, and the hardware manufacturers are going to write their drivers, their software, to the largest market so they can maximize profit. If Linux were the dominating force in OSs, they would write to that, and the Windows people would be on their own. Okay, but my point is that hardware manufacturers write drivers that support Windows. Okay, that's the point. That's the point. Right. That's the point you're making. But that's but that's the manufacturer of the hardware that's supporting Windows, not Windows. What does Windows have to do with it? The open source community also supports drivers that run under Linux. Yeah. You know, they build the hardware, and then, you know, Windows has had to play to the hardware manufacturers in the past. Like the switch from 16-bit to 32-bit. Windows had to make transitions because hardware manufacturers made their own transition. Right, and and to me that's proving the same point. That to say that that hardware is written for Windows is a load of crap. Windows, just like anyone else who's coding a driver, has to write their software to the hardware, not the other way around. I have a Windows example. Oh, well, go for it. Run a Win modem on uh, Linux. It can be done. For there the are a, there are some drivers out there for uh, Lucent mo- Lucent Wind modems, but those are actually paid drivers. Okay, well, that takes us back to the whole free software issue, don't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, Russ getting militant on us. We need to like uh, uh, make sure that his anti- I can't see in his cup to see if he got some anti. <laughs> We're going to have to do something because he's fixing to whoop somebody butt. Oh, no, <laughs> I'm no, Texas, no. So I ain't my about my it. intention is not to get. <laughs> I my think intention most is. Of us are saying the same thing. We're just approaching it from a different angle. It, yeah, and we're, I think we are all saying the same thing in that particular situation. We know that the whole point is who's in bed with who. And as the uh, usership of Linux increases, that we're going to have access to even more hardware drivers and everything else. And it's just, it's that whole mess that caused that lawsuit a few years back is what it's all about. But, uh, so what else you got, Russ, without being mean? <laughs> uh, why don't we go ahead and talk about the wireless driver thing since you wanted to bring that up and, uh, you go ahead and talk about that and I'll be back in 60. Okay. Make sure you get a double shot. <laughs> Actually, uh, you know, that's kind of why I wanted to get this paragraph split in two because the guy doesn't focus his point a lot in these paragraphs. However, um, just to refresh everybody, wireless cards are another issue since they are, for the most part, software-defined radios. The software has to be submitted to the FCC along with hardware for type approval. Also, since the itty-bitty micro on the wireless card doesn't run Intel code, you can't make code for it with GCC or GNU libraries, hence the binary blob. 
an open-source wireless driver for a software-defined, license-free transmitter is an invitation for a smackdown from the FCC. Well, my only point on this, and I, I understand we're still talking about the free software drivers versus the proprietary software drivers and that kind of stuff, but the whole point is, from a radio operator standpoint, uh, yes, a... Uh, a wireless card is a radio transmitter, and yes, it is. In a lot of cases, it is software driven. Sometimes it's hardwired into the chip, but uh, the whole point is all this stuff is type accepted. It has to be submitted. It has to be type accepted. And wireless transmitter cards uh, fall under Part 15. Well, I checked that out before we even started the show tonight. And the fact of the matter is that anybody can operate a Part 15 device without a license. So I'm kind of unclear where he's going with it being a, uh invitation for a smackdown from the FCC because uh, it's no more illegal to operate a wireless card than it is to operate your wireless headphones, your uh, uh, cordless telephone, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in your house. And, you know, that's a comment that I started to make when we were on the previous portion of the paragraph is the fact that even the monitor that you use has to be uh, FC, has to be type accepted by the FCC and has to be tested. It is also a Part 15 device. So now, uh, I'd like to point out in the realm of wireless cards yeah. that the last I knew, um, as long as you were below 300 milliwatts uh, TX, that you didn't need a license. But if you went above that, you actually had to have a certain you actually had to be licensed. Yes, I think there's there's power. power. I mean, there, well, there's two arguments here. I think one of them too is also when you go to part part 15, which has much looser uh, guidelines as far as equipment usage. There, One of the things I think that gets that, if you read a lot of the FCC rulings, both in even Part 97 or Part 15, um, they look at the overall use and function of the device. Bottom line is the code on the back end of the transmitter may be doing things slightly differently, but it's sending 99% of the same instructions that when it goes out. It's sending a web address. It's sending data back from a web address. You're not changing the power output of the transmitter. You're not changing none of that stuff. And to go furthermore, as far as even going uh, from type from the type acceptance standpoint, look at high-speed multimedia. I mean, when that was the, the rage going back a couple of years ago on ham radio, here people are taking what was devices that were normally made for computers, um, you know, with, with wireless routers and everything, and then they're going ahead and using them for a completely different purpose, you know, within within radio, Yet there was no declaratory ruling. Is it being bad from the FCC or anything else? So there is. I mean, I think there's a lot more latitude in Part 15 to sit there and say it's you know completely comparing it to SDR. I think is a bit of a stretch. That's correct. And one of one of the folks in the chat room uh, just mentioned that SDRs are able to transmi- transmit outside the Part 15 range. And in that case, yes, that is an invitation for SmackDown from the FCC. However, uh, there's not a lot of us that are going to do that. And as far as the uh, high-speed multimedia, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about because uh, 802.11b, g, and n are all inside 
uh, amateur radio bands or just adjacent to so the equipment can be adjusted up or down. And, uh, in fact, we had one bicycle ride here or a balloon festival or something a few years back where they set a rider up on top of a 15-story building and uh, set up a network out along the uh, bike route to do that. But in this case, you know, we're talking about if it's part 15, it's operating inside, uh, the bands, it's, or the frequency range it's supposed to operate in. And, uh, the power has not been increased. There's been no super modifications to it. Then, uh, I'm still having trouble seeing where the smackdown from the FCC might come in. And, and, uh, Yes, I I agree with the other thing, but we're going back to what we were talking about in the first part of that paragraph, which is uh, we're in the case of the purists. Okay, you can't write it with the with the free uh, libraries, but once again, you have to use what works in some cases. And now, it, if you don't need to use, if you got the time to not use what works, then more power to you. Well, I think his point. I think needs. Uh, explained here also is on a lot of these wireless cards there is the driver but there's also a firm you know firmware that runs on the card itself that you have to load onto the card to actually get it to run so it's perfectly possible to have the you know binary blob that's the firmware and still have an open source driver that can speak to the firmware and I'll use my Fedora 12 system that I was talking about earlier as the example here. They've actually got a driver on there called OpenFWWF that talks to the Broadcom card without an issue at all. And it works just fine for me. I'm not running a proprietary Broadcom driver to get it to work. And I think that speaks to his issue about the software-defined radio. I think the idea he was bringing up is the fact that if you have a software-defined radio, then you can program it to transmit, for example, beyond its accepted ranges in whether it be Type 15 or Type 97 part acceptance. The thing about that is I don't think that's necessarily possible, particularly where the firmware is closed source, because I think the idea behind the firmware is to keep the hardware within its type-accepted constraints and then allow the open source coders to create the driver that will make that particular piece of hardware work with the operating system in question, and uh, therefore avoiding any kind of smackdown from the FCC, as he puts it. That would be my biggest point, is because of the restrictions of the firmware that's running there, you know, you can't go outside the parameters of the hardware itself. I mean, if you look at the Intel drivers, they've got open source drivers for the Wi-Fi cards they have out there, but they're still they still have the firmware for the card that limits what it can do. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like you can take a software-defined wireless card and turn it into something that it wasn't meant to be, um, because you have to have the firmware, which is basically the internal code, the CMOS code for example, or the BIOS code, if you want to call it that, for the device, which has constraints built in, which are the things that would have been type accepted by the FCC to make the device do what it's supposed to do within constraints set by the organization. All right, well, I think we beat that to death. So do we want to talk about this uh, this very succinct statement that says, from a manufacturer's point of view, Linux is total chaos? 
Yeah, y'all have at that because I'm 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 listening. I don't see how a manufacturer can see a coding, you know, a group of coders as chaos. I mean, they put out a product. They put out a product that either has an open source API, or it has a closed source API, or it has a closed source programming model, and they decide whether someone can actually code and make their hardware work or not. And how does that bring chaos to a manufacturer? Well, with the rapid changes that can happen inside of some elements of, you know, a Linux system, you know, just the diff- you know, difference between, you know, the 2630 and the 2632 kernel can be enough that it could break a proprietary driver. But there's even something in that case that's helping to alleviate that issue, and that's the... Um, package called DKMS. Yeah, but that statement about, from a manufacturer's point of view, Linux is total chaos. No, it's not. It's just, all they have to do is open the API. Done. It, it was really easy. They they have software that runs on Windows, and they said, hey, let the community do what they're going to do. If it's going to sell more of my cards for me, or you know, more of my digital widgets, then so be it. I mean, it doesn't have to be chaos at all. It's their choice, whether they want it to be or not. It's not the Linux coders that are making it the chaos. It's up to the manufacturer whether they want the chaos. Well, and I also think the idea is that they are creating, you know, I think uh, N2ENN, the the one who wrote the email, was concerned about the fact that manufacturers might be concerned about their proprietary code. But the idea is the fact that if you want to keep your, you know, proprietary code proprietary and still let open source designers design drivers for your hardware, that's why you create the API and open source that. That way... You limit what the driver designers can do, keep your hardware proprietary as it is, and still allow driver coders to make drivers that work. And one thing I will have to, you know, I feel I have to point out is there was some talk out of the, uh, if I remember correctly, out of the kernel team that was talking about intentionally making it hard on the proprietary guys at one point, or at least people writing proprietary kernel modules that they were talking about intentionally making changes to the APIs to make it a moving target. But I think that's something that never really went through. Well, I think if they do that, then the toughest part you're going to have is you're going to end up diluting your potential user base that that would cross over. And I think that from what I've seen going to some of the Linux conferences and stuff like that, you just end up with that hardcore bunch that says, hey, if there's 20 of us in a room, we're happy with it. We're hardcore. Hey, I did my web page in Notepad or something like that. But... You know, bottom line, I don't think that the, the 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 community as a whole wants to, you know, divert the opportunities of, you know, having more and more options in there. I mean, that'd be just insane. Yeah, I've seen situations where hard where coders who are coding to specifically to Linux have had issues, but I think that's bad coding from the manufacturer. And one of those things, one of those in particular, is VMware. Where every time somebody comes out with, where every time Linux comes out with a new kernel version, VMware doesn't work properly because they're coding open source drivers that may, you know, that make VMware work with Linux, for example, and something in the kernel structure will change and it breaks the way VMware works. And that, that might be the issue that's being addressed here. But the thing of it is, usually... Well, I would have to offer a counterpoint in a similar software, which is VirtualBox, which they, you know, under Ubuntu and Fedora, they 
recommend on both of those that you install DKMS, and I'm bringing it up again. And VirtualBox, every time I do a kernel upgrade, DKMS takes care of recompiling the module, and it just keeps humming along. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to address this specific issue brought up about Linux yeah. being chaos. In, in that sense, I, I, I think it could be considered chaos from a manufacturer's point of view, but I think what the issue is is not that Linux, the advancement of the Linux kernel is somehow chaos. It's just a poorly designed, it's just that the, the team who's designing the drivers for the, for the vendor in question, i.e. VMware, doesn't know what the hell they're doing, basically, is, is what's going on. I don't, I don't think it's the advancement of the Linux kernel necessarily. Because all of that's open source, and anyone who is writing code to that kernel should have some idea what's going on anyway. At least I think so, or I, I would think so. And the you know issue I think you could hit on right there is they're writing specifically to a single kernel instead of writing to a more uh, overlying structure. Right, but I think that's a problem with the coders, not with the kernel. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I think I'm misunderstanding um, uh, driver the way he's using it because I see kernel level, kernel level. I see won't run on Fedora if it runs on Ubuntu and this kind of stuff. So maybe I'm misunderstanding what the guy means by driver. Well, first of all, to say that a driver won't work on Ubuntu or Fedora and will work on some other distribution is completely screwing with the issue because all the linux kernel is is a collection of drivers basically to say that it doesn't work on one distribution and works on another doesn't make any sense because distributions are gnu software or in most cases gnu software and have nothing whatsoever to do with the kernel itself you know if you have a 2.6.30 something kernel that has a driver for a particular piece of hardware built into it it should work on any distribution that calls itself linux well i have to disagree a little bit because different distros do you know their own different patches to the kernel which can cause a little bit of discrepancy between you know 2.6.30 on Ubuntu or 2630 on Fedora. Okay, but does that does that speak to the statement in his email that says a driver for Ubuntu won't work for Fedora or even Ubuntu Studio? I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true. From Ubuntu, you know, anything Ubuntu to something Fedora, sometimes, but it, I haven't seen it heavily. I'm I'm just looking at the email now to see if there's something else we can address. Well, first of all, there's uh, he he talks about the two graphic systems, Xorg and Xfree. It's my understanding that I, mo- most distributions. I'm uh, working on this on the Xfree 86 side. Their last release was version 4.8 in 2008, and if you look on the Devel mailing list, there's only been about eight, I want to say, patches submitted to Xfree 86. Since 2008. Yeah, I didn't want to go ahead and make the arbitrary statement, but I was pretty sure that X386 was essentially dead as soon as the XORC fork happened. Yeah, you know, X386, there's still some use for it. I would guess that there's, you know, one guy still, you know, doing patches to it, but it looks like it's pretty much 
you know, has been supplanted and X-Org is, you know, the main game in town. Well, Ted's telling us in the chat room that X-Free is history. Uh, I don't know if you know Ted, but uh, he does some, uh, builds some soft, amateur-related software for uh, Linux platform. <clears throat> so what did he say? Uh, he says that X-Free, X-Free is history is exactly what Ted told us in the chat room. I didn't want to go quite that far just because I looked at the, de- because of what I saw in the Devel mailing list and that there's one guy who since 2008 has submitted patches for X-Term still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, X-Free 86 is still out there. I went to the website earlier, but as far as uh, modern Linux distributions adopting it as an X platform, it, it is completely dead. I mean, everybody has switched to Xorg at this point. And uh, was it a was it a patent or a license thing with X-Free? I can't remember why there was the code for I think it was in part um, because of a rewrite for Xorg. There were things they wanted to do that it was easier to fork and start over. Were you saying something, Jonathan? Or No, I'm not saying anything. Oh, okay. I, I saw something come up on your Skype link there. I thought you were in competition with Lord D. No, no, no. I was uh, competing with my uh, puppy. Oh, okay. <laughs> so let's see. What else can we uh, beat on in this email? Does that dog use Linux? Uh, puppy Linux, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I think they're dead, too, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, here, here's a here's a flat statement we can address. Linux on the desktop will be ready for prime time when a manufacturer can release a simple to install driver and expect the hardware to work properly with the driver for at least three years. Yeah, but I think that goes back to the same thing we've already beat to death before about just if it's a it's the manufacturer's choice if they just want to release an API, then it's a done story. Somebody's going to jump on it. Right. Absolutely. I've I've got to point out that Nvidia has probably been of most hardware manufacturers, one of the best for their Linux drivers. I mean, just look at the fact of VDPAU even. And okay, here's here's the end of the the uh, email. In order for this to happen, the OS will have to take on the characteristics of a virtual machine, showing the kernel as a generic abstraction of the hardware, so the kernel and operating system can evolve without breaking everything. A generic abstraction. Isn't that just called an API layer? Well, that's what I thought. And uh, most hardware actually has, well, I, I guess Linux itself has gotten away from the HAL, the hardware abstraction layer. They've actually kind of dumped that thing. But everything is there already for that because you can't code to a specific piece of hardware. You have to have a level of abstraction in order to have software work at all. thought we were already there, so to speak, and and a virtual machine is just a second layer of abstraction, not not the first one. You know, I think the thing that addresses that issue more is, you know, market share. It's not worth some hardware manufacturer's time to do a Linux driver because of the small numbers they'll get there versus that they'll get on the Windows side of things. You know, some piece of hardware that's meant for the consumer market may not have a driver written by the hardware manufacturer because it's not worth their time and effort. But if you look at the server side of things, some of the, you know, high-end cards, those guys are taking the time and effort to work with the uh, false communities because that's the server market. Things like, you know, Linux, BS, the BSDs, 
reign supreme there. So they play to those markets and help with drivers there because it, you know, is to their benefit. Well, also, uh, HP and Lexmark and some of the other printer manufacturers, Lexmark in particular, because I've used their website the most, they have Linux drivers on their website. Now, they may not have people working at Lexmark to uh, write those drivers. They may be pulling them in from a project out on SourceForge or something that they have a deal with. But, you know, these guys are, are actively pursuing putting out drivers for at least some of their models. And Hewlett, the Hewlett-Packard's, in fact, I'm looking at Hewlett-Packard uh, that I'm going to pick up in the next couple of days that I went straight to the website, uh, clicked on uh, download drivers, and boom, there was a Linux driver for it or uh a driver for cups anyway you know that that's the whole point yeah you almost don't want to bring printing in uh, uh thing that comes installed default on ubuntu systems at least yeah yeah you know my my hp is the same way but i think fundamentally though uh, you can almost take that last statement a little bit philosophically uh, in in the sense that there's less and less demands also on us having so much specifically written code for hardware when every year more and more people are moving to cloud-based applications and everything else too so you know taking a lot of that into account you know when a lot of the stuff you're doing is specifically in your browser what are you doing you mean you know you're doing something in your browser you're printing it or you're maybe watching a movie or something like that i mean now i look at you know, I'd say probably seventy percent of my stuff I'm doing now is cloud-based in one way or another. And you know, for the casual user, it's the same way too. They're on Facebook or they're texting or you know, skyping or something like that. So I mean, I think you're going to have less. I think it's going to be less and less of an issue as we go forward. Cloud exactly. computing can bite me. Who? Huh? I said cloud computing can bite me. <laughs> Ooh, Russ said bite me twice. <laughs> Not a big I fan of the cloud. Big again, big boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, despite our uh, general disagreements and uh, and and whatnot, I, th- I think we can uh, have some overall consensus that this email does doesn't make a lot of valid points. And the idea that a personal computers are built to run Windows, and b that manufact from a manufacturer's point of view, Linux is total chaos. Uh, pretty much uh, BS. Yes, I would have to say my final point on it all is that it's, you know, market share plays more of an issue on why they write drivers for Windows versus Linux. Exactly. No, I think that's 100% correct, but just because they only write drivers from Windows doesn't mean that Linux is chaos. The The idea is oh, that... Not li- at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, I one, one last thing... fix viruses all the time. <laughs> Well, one last thing on the Linux is chaos thing. You know, somebody looking at what's going on, you know, you got these big companies where they write the software, they have specific projects in different parts of the building, writing specific drivers for specific pieces of hardware. And in the case of Linux, all that kind of stuff is decentralized. Even if there is a managed project, most of the guys that are on the project are not, sometimes not even in the same state and that i can see where somebody who is looking at that aspect of it might think it's chaos but yeah i've had things break when i've done an upgrade and i just waited for the next upgrade samba's really bad about breaking for me when there's some upgrades through the system here 
But the fact of the matter is that, you know, there's people over at Samba catching that stuff up, getting the patches out if they need to be out, or uh, just redoing to the next version, whatever happens. I can see where somebody that would think that organized is a central centralized project and projects that are sp- spread out the way some of the Linux projects are geographically might look like chaos and they may assume that uh it looks like chaos to the manufacturers who are aware of the different nature of linux versus os 10 or the evil empire well the idea there is that yeah samba may break every once in a while but then kernel development is pretty active but I've seen that Windows 7 breaks a whole lot of stuff, too. That's why they include Windows XP compatibility mode to fix that, so to speak. The yeah, only difference that works. <laughs> yeah. The only difference there is the fact that the, the Linux kernel actually gets developed on an active basis, and Windows can't put it out in an operating system upgrade for eight years. Exactly my point. <laughs> it's funny because that's one of the reasons why my work machine has uh, XP, uh, or XP, boy, take a step back, uh, 7 Pro on there. And uh, I still couldn't get Acrobat to work right. I still couldn't get Nero to work right. So I'm just that hundred bucks was money well spent. I'd say not. <laughs> well, I got a little hint for y'all. Wife got a laptop for her birthday, and it came with uh, seven pre-installed. And as soon as it hiccups, it doesn't even have to break or quit working. As soon as it hiccups, it's going to have a copy of Linux on it in a heartbeat. <laughs> Richard's got his Roy Rogers belt with nine distributions on it. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, I, I normally download six or eight different distributions when they get released and keep a current copy of it in case I need it for some reason. Isn't that sick? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'd call it sick or not. I, it's called being prepared. Yeah. <laughs> it's like being a Boy Scout. I for six years. I found the distribution I liked and I just stayed with it. Yeah, well, there, I mean, there you go. I occasionally, I I get a lot of machines drifting through here, and occasionally you go to put a particular uh, version of Linux on it on one, and it won't take it. I've I've had that problem with uh, PC Linux OS and a couple of others, but uh, if you've got six or eight different distributions uh, from four or five different base distributions, then you got it covered because you can have, find something in your arsenal to get that machine running. I'm starting to picture Richard like Schneider from Three's Company with thumb drives and live distributions like that keychain there. That's, that's not it's far it's, off. It wouldn't be too far off. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I can reach my hand. In fact, I can't reach a, a thumb drive or a di- distribution disk, but I did just reach out and picked up a gig of memory, and it's flashing in front of the camera right now. <laughs> yeah, if nothing else that's another good point about linux there's uh linux itself and uh, the linux kernel and gnu software can be the right tool for the job no matter what you're doing whereas windows comes out every nine years whether they have to or not and if it yeah. doesn't work for you you're like new england whitefish that would be scrawd the beautiful thing about that though is i don't know how often it works you know when they, they'll call a tech down or something like that because we have service agreements and all that and they can't fix a problem, or they're taking for, especially if it's a hard drive-related problem, you know, involving like an MDR or something like that, or your your fat tables or something. And they'll spend hours trying to fix it, and then you could download a bootable 
you know, even like a four-year-old copy of Nopix will fix the problem in five minutes. <laughs> I have one of those. <laughs> Anyone who's uh, at all used Linux has one of those somewhere. Trust me. I got one of them. I I, I, I tried to keep anyone I know who runs Linux who hasn't used a Nopix distro except for the female friend of mine I switched over. Well, somebody was talking about Harv's Ham Shack hack a while ago. That was that was built on yeah that was built on top of Nopix. It would find everything. Didn't matter what your hardware was, it would find everything. Yeah, yeah, but I think it died on top of Nopix too because I a lot of people talked about the project, but then there were like no updates for Lord knows how long, and I just gave up trying to look for an update. I'm assuming it still probably hasn't had any development in Lord knows how long. No, it's still the same one that's been out there for years. There's another guy that's built one over in France, but he can't make up his mind whether he's going to charge for it or not. So we just quit mentioning him at all. You sent me some colorful emails on that topic. (laughs) (laughs) We we had a few early episodes about that. We also need to look at on why sometimes some distros ship with the driver or not is where the distro is based out of and hosted. Well, go ahead and elaborate. Um, Well, I'll just go with MP3 for a very easy one. Because of patent issues inside the U.S., most distros in the U.S. do not ship with the ability to play back MP3s by default. You have to download that on your own separately. Whereas a distro like Linux Mint that's not hosted inside the U.S. can ship with it because they aren't encumbered by those patent issues. Yeah, but a lot of that though gets back to where we're gonna we're gonna argue the GNU aspect or not because I haven't exactly seen uh, Fraunhofer suing anybody for MP3 lately. Yeah, and they won't actually because they've uh, signed them. Well, they've uh, indicated a moratorium. Um, on MP3 patent restriction on open source projects, they they say they won't enforce them. But the thing of it is, we've gone way, way away from this email. I've been and, I've been letting y'all go because yeah. we're gonna get two episodes of this one. I don't know if we're gonna do that or not because I'm gonna rein it in right here and basically say we're done. First of all, I would like to thank Jim N2ENN for sending us this uh, thought-provoking email that we have been rambling about. And I would also like to thank our guests for the evening, and that would be, first of all, Lord Drakenblut. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been great to have you. And also, uh, that would be Jonathan, KB1KIX. Thank you for showing up on the program tonight. Hey, thanks for letting the guy from... Right next to Newington Gate Crash on an open source podcast. Just, just because you're that close to the league, we're not going to hold it against you. And the worst part is I'm a volunteer at W1AW, so if you really put me in the spot, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't crash an open source podcast. They simply merged his code into Trunk. That's that's entirely <laughs> correct. That's right. And we are Creative Commons, so unfortunately we're no derivatives, so everybody can't mess with us. <laughs> I think that's definitely going to be the episode for the for tonight because I'm going to have a I'm going to have a mean, menacing, evil job trying to get this thing to uh, something shorter than a uh, Linux Link Tech Show episode. And you don't want to hear the Cartman bird. All right, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Th- thanks for helping us out with that uh, email. It was uh, pretty thought-provoking, if uh, almost entirely incorrect. 
So thanks, guys, for coming in, and I think we're going to wind this up, and we look forward to seeing everybody in the next episode, which will be number 35, in about two weeks' time. I'm up here in the uh, in the valley between the peaks in the pine forest of north-central Arkansas. That's Russ, K5TUX, sometimes known as K5TUX at BlackSparrowMedia.com. And down there in the bunker in Bald Springs is the other guy, and he's going to sign us out. You know, he's just about ready to run this thing by himself. If you want to contact me, uh, send an email to kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. Just follow me. But don't follow me too close right after a Mexican dinner. And with that, we're going to wrap it up for this time. We'll see all of y'all. Bye now. Next time. Bye, bye, bye. Got the last word. Ha, <laughs> ha.